Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to be with you all and uh, I am delighted to welcome um, a friend of mine to the show for the first time um, and uh, a podcaster and a lot of other things as well. And uh, welcome Lauren Larkin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been um, it's, it's uh, been on the cards for a while, I think. Uh, so tell us just before we get into the conversation that we're going to have, um, which I'm really looking forward to the, what we're going to talk about. Uh, just tell us a bit about you. Sure. Um, well, I am a priest in the Episcopal Church, and I'm currently a priest in charge of a small congregation here in Colorado. I am also a doctoral student working on a dissertation in systematic theology and political ethics. And I'm a mother of three and a partner of one. And that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it pretty much does. Yeah. Um, and you've got a great podcast. Um, I, would, I recorded with you for that. Mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, I don't know if it's gone out yet, but um, well, um, uh, but I would recommend your podcast anyway. Uh, it's really great. Uh, what's it? What's your podcast called? Sancta Colloquia, and it is based off of the idea of sacred conversations, meaning conversations that I have with my friends that were pretty much just recording. So it's like a eavesdropping in on a regular conversation I would have with any one of my colleagues, um, and so that's the premise of the show. That's fantastic. That's kind of what I do as well. It's more informal conversations, you know. Uh, I love that. I prefer that. I prefer that. Uh, and we're going to have a really interesting one today because this is a conversation that that kind of started on on Twitter, right? Um, like, uh, a few months, a few like ten, a few, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was November the tenth. We we're recording late November, a couple of weeks after the uh, American election. And we were talking about it on Twitter, and I, I, I wrote this tweet saying, you can tell Trumpists and conservative evangelicals have never processed grief and trauma. They have no empathy, no connection to themselves, and barely question anything. Uh, and that's what I said at the time. And we had a, a conversation about it on Twitter and decided this might be a good conversation for a podcast. So uh, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Yeah, um, and it is... It is a really important topic. It's it's something that grief is grief is something that I talk about a lot on the show and healthy responses to grief and unhealthy responses to grief. Uh, and uh, you know, we talk about deconstruction, we talk about purity culture, we talk about um, all those kind of things on the show, and uh, even we've touched on politics a couple of times. So, and this is kind of tied into all of it because um, basically, what my what I was saying is that you know when 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 we have grief, we all carry grief around with us. We all have we, we all have kind of trauma of some kind, rejection, and you know, pain of some kind that we've experienced. And what religious certainty teaches us to do is to build a structure around that uh, and act like it's all okay. And when you build a structure around it, it kind of disappears, and you think it's gone. And uh, and that's very dangerous because it gives that grief, that pain, power over us, and it allows it to grow and uh, get its tentacles into all aspects of our life. And uh, and all, and sometimes the deeper the pain, the deep, the, the stronger the certainty. Uh, and that can be very, very dangerous. And we see this a lot in fundamentalism. 
uh, of all kinds, progressive fundamentalism and conservative fundamentalism, but especially in the evangelical church, the conservative evangelical church, and you know, which is basically built on religious, which is religious certainty and people believing basically whatever they're told. And when you have, because when you have certainty, you don't question things as much. You just listen to what you're told from the pulpit or from the leader of the political party that your religion is meant to support, and you just believe them. And and that's one of the reasons I think we've got into this mess is because people have just gone and gravitated towards Donald Trump and uh, like he's the saviour of everything and will not question him and will not and see any criticism him of him as uh, you know um, as kind of fiction and. They won't wear masks because they think that God will protect them and because they think they're immune to the rules of the world <laughs> and immune to science. And this is where it goes. And it's not its not even a conscious decision by the time it gets to that point because, because you've kind of basically been brainwashed. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It sounds quite, um, <laughs> it sounds quite dark and quite extreme, but at its core, that's kind of what it is because you've been indoctrinated into this stuff because you've chosen to not deal with your grief and your pain and your trauma uh you've chosen to hide it with certainty and that's why when it all goes wrong for your your group or your leader then there's tons of anger because you've built up all this anger because you've never dealt with your grief Mm -hmm. so um, what are your thoughts on all of this well there's a well at a few things come to mind, but one that I'm principally dealing with in my own work is this, um, it's something that kind of sparked when you said they're choosing to not face their grief. And I would actually say, I agree with that, but simultaneously I would add, I don't think they can. So when we look at the evangelical kind of conservative fundamentalist strands of Christianity, specifically within the American context, because that's the context I'm dealing with. One of the things that, um, the the reason why surety and doctrines being kind of clung to um, with a death grip um, is so prevalent is due to the reality that often what happens to the human person in the context of the pews of the more conservative fundamentalist strands of Christianity in the American context is that their personhood has essentially been stripped from them. And when you strip someone's personhood from them, you now have an empty vessel into which you can pour whatever narrative you would like to pour into that. Now, what I've experienced from being, you know, both a priest and a teacher is that this is sort of a prevalent thing in um, many aspects of Christianity, that you have to believe in a certain way and that it's less of me and more of Jesus, right? And so you have this this idea of this stripping out of the self um, and narcissism, which is something that kind of is fluid in the American context as a systemic problem, with that stripped down self, you get the um, you get the reality of um, of of someone who actually can't evaluate the self from a grief or traumatic perspective because there is no substantial self 
on which to lean against to evaluate the grief and trauma because we've stripped it down. Same thing, too, when you think about that nationalistic language um, of even just like the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, right? You get this idea of this embracing um, full stop, this narrative of American supremacy. You get this embracing full stop of Christian supremacy. You get this embracing full stop of white supremacy. And it's all built out of this stripping down of the self. And the church really, um, the evangelical conservative church, really sort of um, has assisted that entire narrative because it too strips down people, um, specifically people like women or people of color or LGBTQ. If you can remove the from those people. You can then fill those people with whatever narrative you need in order to maintain the systems of white supremacy, Christian supremacy, patriarchy, um, and American nationalism. Right. Absolutely. So you, yeah, you have this, you, and it's, it's a church, it's a church problem. And this is part of the tack that I'm taking with my own work is that we, um, when Jesus says, you know, um, pick up your cross and follow me, he, the person who loses themselves, he also says, will find themselves. And we don't play up that second part of the equation very much. We talk about losing self all the time and not so much the finding of self. And that is the promise, actually, is that when you step in and pick up your cross, you're actually become more James. I'm going to become more Lauren. And this is going to be um, as full selves, not vacuous shells, not Edgar suits to refer to men in black one, um, but actual fully embodied um, or bodied, like my friend Kate Hanch would say, bodied individuals with their own power and their own call and their own views to the world. Um, and that is actually dangerous. And authority systems that are built in a narcissistic way don't like that. So they have to contend with it through stripping of self. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You absolutely nailed that. You kind of, you lose your identity. You lose your individual identity. Uh, and yeah. You stop growing because you build you built a structure that hides because when you hide your pain you hide your true self mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. where because in doing i mean i know this from doing the work myself that the more i go into my pain the more i go into my grief the more i do the work the more i connect with myself yes my individual unique self my true identity you know my um my best self my divine self you want to call it even um and when you don't do that there's yeah, you're not connected at all. So you're more open to having that filled by somebody else and yes, not engaging yeah. in critical thinking and things like that. And that, uh, and asking the wrong kinds of questions, you know, like, so questioning the wrong things, like questioning science, you know, instead of questioning your beliefs, instead of questioning your theology, instead of questioning your own story and, and the things that will help you grow, you actually start questioning things like science and, you know, and, and evidence and, uh, you know, things that you shouldn't, maybe, that maybe don't need questions, maybe you shouldn't be questioning because when you start questioning science, then people start dying of COVID because you're not wearing masks. Right. Uh, and that's very dangerous. Right. One of What I'd like to do is build off of what you just said, because I think when we um, lose 
when we lose our ability, well, actually, I would say I would add that we lose eventually lose our ability to question. I don't find much questioning going on from places like the far right or maybe even um, you mentioned progressive fundamentalists. Um, any fundamentalist group sort of buys the narrative that they've been given hook, line and sinker. There's no ability. It's cult language, right? Like when you get into a system that is cultic in in nature, you have to buy the narrative or not. Um, and the narrative will be. Uh, um, brainwashed into you. And I don't hear actually, I don't hear much questioning going on at all. I don't even know if the far right would necessarily question science as they're just offering an answer. No. It's literally like they, the ability to question has been lost altogether. Simultaneously, if you can't yeah. question external things, then you're not going to question yourself as well. And that gets you straight into the arena that you're talking about, which is the inability to um, uh, process your grief and trauma, because one of the hardest questions, I have suffered physical and emotional trauma and grief deeply, deeply. And one of the scariest questions, if I'm not on solid ground, if I don't know who I am, one of the scariest questions to ask is why? Why did that happen? And if I can't face that, then I'm going to shut that all down and I'm going to try to find external things, external stories, external reasons to fill the silence that is threatening asking the question. And the more that I do that, the more I'll drown that out. And what I want to do is I want to liken it to working out. Okay. Um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, just recently was this idea that the more that you kind of address your grief and trauma, the more self you become. And then simultaneously, the more self you find, the more James you become, the more grief and trauma you can process, right? So it's this self-giving cycle of strength upon strength. It's the same thing when you work out. And it's interesting that the stronger you become, the more energy you have. Okay. And so mm. just in basic athletic language, the more energy, the more strength you have, the more energy you have, the more strength you'll get, the more energy you'll get. And in the flip side, the more lethargy you have, the more lethargy you'll have, the weaker you'll get. Right. And so when we um, decide to not, um, or maybe with our inability to turn in and look at our grief and trauma, the more we produce an inability to look at our grief and trauma. Therefore, our reactions to shame actually become um, more heightened, more aggressive, more violent, because we don't even know how to deal with the fact that maybe we did something wrong. Because grief and trauma can also encompass what we've done right? It's we suffer and we cause others to suffer and that causes us to suffer. And so we need with grief and trauma, we need to also process where we are guilty, where we have shame because we are guilty. And if we just push that to the side, um, I believe Chuck DeGroat in his book talks about our sort of allergic reaction to anything that causes us to have any shame. I would say that in general, looking at the systemic problem of narcissism as a whole through church and through um, our own atmosphere culturally, um, Americans are exceptionally allergic to dealing with shame. We yeah. don't want to deal with it. And the reality is that we have to. We have done things wrong. We need, as a nation, we need to repent of systemic violence towards black bodies. And we won't do it. Our election tells us we won't. We want to maintain, we want to make America great again. Someone tell me what, again, was great 
for everyone but white men, white cishet men. Yeah, exactly. America was never great in that sense. You know, maybe you were a prosperous country. Maybe you were successful as a country, but it wasn't a great America for every single person in America. It was great for white people and particularly white men. Yes. Uh, And that's not... (laughs) So, um, yeah, it feels like that Make America Great Again was actually Make America Great Again for white people. Yes. Not not Make America Great Again. because, And you can see that in the voting patterns because 55% of white women voted for Trump. Knowing what he did in the last four years as president, knowing who he is as well and what he's done to women and what he probably still does to women um, that we probably don't know about. Um, I've got speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, And they still vote for him. You know, it's it's just, it's it's mind-blowing. You know, uh, it's more mind-blowing than men. I can get white men voting for him, um, you know, because white evangelical men, yeah, of course they're going to vote for someone like that. Um, but um, because that's what they've been brought up with, to think is normal, you know, and, um, yeah, and <laughs> but um, that's not all white men either, but a lot of white men voted for Trump. Uh, just that's the statistics, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's because yeah, I, I just it's yeah, America has never been great for everybody. It's never been, and of course, I think, and I've been reading Barack Obama's uh, memoir, and he actually alludes to this, I think, in the book uh, that one of the that Trump was almost a reaction to him because um, the election of the first black president showed showed America that. It was changing that, that, that you know that that they were willing to elect a black president. You know that was a big shift in you know in culture in history. And there are a lot of white Americans who didn't like it and felt they were losing their country because it was changing. So when Trump comes along and says, "Let's make America great again," as in, "Let's forget this guy ever happened and go back to whites being best." Uh, of course, they're going to they're going to fall they're going to fall for that you know they're because I think you know seeing some documentaries on Trump and Trump supporters they were thinking that Barack Obama was like the establishment you know that somehow and that 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 this was like and he was too politically correct and all and all of this was like no this is just how the world should be kind of thing right like uh, you just don't want it like that you know uh, and Trump was a reaction to that and Trumpism is a reaction to that and. Sadly, there's still a lot of Americans who are like that, and that's what the vote tells us. The number of people that voted for for Trump, even after what he's done, uh, you know, it, it's um, it's terrifying, really. Yeah, it is, and it's uh, something that just I I don't know. I I often contemplate. I actually spend time thinking how can we actually address this is really massive problem. And one of the things that um, drew me to your tweet is that I do think that on a national level, there has to be some movement towards a forward view that acknowledges the harms and violences of eras past of the American nation, of the American people against people of color. Um, and, um, 
what what has been done. And I think that without the ability to actually do some really substantial self-work and being radically honest, calling a thing what it is. So I'm a theologian. Um, I, I call myself a theologian of the cross. And a, and a good theologian of the cross is the one who can call a thing what it is. And it's an and it's it's a position of honesty, real honesty. And so when things are bad, you say things are bad. You don't say things are okay, right? Um, and right now we really need a big dose of calling a thing what it is. Um, as long as we sort of subscribe to this narrative of um, American supremacy in in the world or white supremacy, as long as we keep clinging to narratives, we're going to keep causing violence. Um, and one of the, one of the things that was really interesting when you talked about the transition from Obama, the President Obama to President Trump, um, one of the things I noticed as a woman in America, and it was within months of Trump taking office, was the way that white cishet men treated me, which was radically different. And I remember having a conversation with someone, and I said. I think it's Trump. And someone said, no, I think you're just noticing it because you're becoming more awake to the reality of women in, in the society. And I was like, no, no, he, they're getting licensed. They're getting permission to treat me wrongly, like to treat me horribly. And it, it, it comes, it flows in through the leadership. And so you have this, um, search. So if you have a violent leader, you're going to have a violent populace, um, because it's a license. You can treat, um, women this way. You can treat people of color this way, because if your leader doesn't care, and one of the things that, that was nice about having president Obama in office was that you had to care, <laughs> And we don't like change. And so it was frustrating for some people, but there were civilities in place where it felt a little bit more comfortable to be a woman um, in the society. Um, I can only speak from that perspective because that's my um, context. Um, but there is a marked difference depending on the leadership that you have. And Trump is a backlash. Um, and it felt like it. It felt like it to the core of my being, it felt like a backlash. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really did. Um, yeah. And it, it, it was, it was, it was, really, it was really sad to watch from, from, from afar, you know, um, I don't think anyone in this country could believe it when he got elected. Uh, and it's interesting what you mentioned about those men looking at you differently. Um, because when the Brexit vote happened here, uh, which was a shock, uh, for us, as much as Trump was a shock for you, uh, that you know, we you noticed that some that 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 kind of incidents of racial hatred started to come, started to happen. You know, racial violence um, towards people, basically from Europe, uh, people who kind of immigrants who'd moved here from Europe, um, you know, um, all parts of Europe, uh, and uh, this kind of xenophobia and. It was it was horrible. People, I heard a story of um, someone, um, a Polish waitress, being laughed at by two white people in a restaurant, um, saying "You'll be off soon." Good riddance, kind of thing, you know, and and stuff like that was happening. And it was, and it because, like you say, now they had a license to do it. They felt like, oh, we have permission to do this now. This has been, we always felt this, but now it's been validated, and we can actually 
we can actually say it. You know, right. it was it was terrifying. You know, but the thing the thing is that those things actually were, all, were always there, but right. they just didn't feel like they had permission to permission to express those views. Right. So it wasn't so because we thought I think a lot of us thought well we've rooted out these problems they're not like they're not there anymore. But what we'd actually done is there's this we'd had this kind of progressive certainty where like we've won with oppressive fundamentalism, you know, like we've won, we've won the culture war, we've won the political war, like we like political correctness, we're we all, you know, everything this is this is how it is now, and you just have to you just have to do what we say because we're in charge and um, we're not gonna listen to you if you disagree with us, we're not going to pay you any attention if you disagree with us. Um, because um, we were in charge, and then as soon as they got their chance, they, you know, they expressed those views again. They didn't change their views. Right. In fact, they probably got more and more frustrated and more added more adamant in their views because they weren't being listened to, because they weren't accepted anymore as part of culture. Right. And that's probably a failing of progressive fundamentalism in that instead of listening to these people and trying to kind of trying to kind of nudge them in the direction of growth and actually hearing their stories and their perspectives, we kind of just excluded them and ignored them and didn't listen to them and didn't pay attention to them. And it, and that allowed things like Brexit and Trump to happen because right. he came, because they came along and said, oh, we'll listen to you. We'll listen to you. I know everyone else has forgotten you, but we'll listen to you. Right. You know, And that's why they thought they were rebelling against the, the establishment because they thought progressive fundamentalism was now the establishment. Right. It wasn't. Uh, and uh, and that Trump was at break with all of that, and let, let's get back to what we were, what we had before, which was white supremacy, right. and uh, uh, yeah, and that's and it's interesting how it happened. It's tragic. It is tragic. It is tragic, uh, and it's it it makes sense that it did happen because when you are when your identity is formed around the sort of hook, line, and sinker swallowed narrative that you've been told your whole entire life, then you don't have the ability to move forward. When you get the opportunity to run back, you will. Now, anyone who's been through any quality therapy knows that reverting is never good, right? Like going back to the abusive relationship isn't a good idea. Going back to the traumatic script in your head isn't good, right? Like we know that going backwards towards what was held to be esteemed at a certain different era is never the right move. Um, the church is being threatened right now with um, the, in, in my opinion, with the decision to either go forward or to run back to traditionalisms. The church is famous for running back to going, we're going to get back to the roots. We're going to get back to the tradition. But in doing that, you're just confessing that you don't have an internal narrative that is an actual substance of self that can allow you to stand in the present and take steps into an unknown future. So, and this is part of that narcissistic system that we've been kind of talking about um, while talking about the inability to process grief and trauma. When you don't have a self, which is the classic aspect of a narcissist, we often think that with narcissism, it's an over-exaggerated sense of self, like they're super all about themselves, but actually it's an exposure of a lack of self. And so when we have a narcissistic system that feeds off of myths and narratives of greatness and whatever it is, when the opportunity arises for the 
group to run back to a narrative that was, it will be taken. That's why Trump was elected. It's why Brexit happened, right? It's it's a surge backwards. Um, it's not it's not radical. It's not progressive. Um, it's a it's it's reactionary and it's backwards, um, and it's devastating and it's always stunting. Um, real growth is always predicated off of an ability to stand in the present and to step forward into a future that you can't ne- you can't necessarily know and determine, but you know who you are so you can step into that unknown, right? And so there's that whole aspect that's operating um, that I'm hearing you talk about while you're telling me about, you know, the reactionary uh, responses with an election of someone like Trump and um, a vote for something like Brexit. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and we've seen it before. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day that Jimmy Carter, when he was president, he, he listened to some of his speeches and he was actually naming a lot of the malaise, a lot of the trauma, a lot of the of the grief, a lot of the issues that America as a nation and the individuals in America were, were carrying. You know, that there was um, the, the consumerism and putting and putting our value in possessions and money and uh and you know and this kind of idea of like consumerism and capitalism, extreme capitalism, you know, kind of making us more individualistic and divisive and going to cause us problems down the line. And he said all this in this, like in the, in 1979 and he was naming all of this stuff. And of course, Reagan comes along with certainty and he said, make America great again as well. And, um, you know, when he said that it was, it was, and of course the Americans didn't, the Americans chose to, uh, chose to go back to certainty. They chose to ignore what Carter was saying, and they chose to go with Reagan, and that changed the course of of history. That changed the course of American history, and indeed, um, you would say modern hey. British history. And because uh, we chose that path as well in the in the UK, we chose to go down that path, and. Because America didn't want to deal with their trauma. They just wanted to go back to certainty. They wanted to pretend like there was no problems. They wanted optimism. You know, they wanted um they wanted to just forget that things were, were bad and and pretend like that hadn't happened. And you know, we've seen this is and essentially Trump is kind of a manifestation of of that thirty, forty years down the line. Right. Right. And it's the 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 you just and and you you and I both know. Um, I, I get the feeling from listening to your podcast, and I know my own story. And we've talked that when you can't face what has happened to you and talk openly, um, not saying publicly, I just mean in words, even if it's to yourself, about the grief and trauma that you've experienced, um, you're going to revert back to that which is comfortable. And that which is safe. And so it's always going to be that narrative. It's always going to be that violent relationship. It's always going to be that, you know, environment that you shouldn't be in. Um, and change is hard and change demands a certain amount of self-presence. And if you've been stripped of self, you're going to have an inability to do it. Um, I mean, it, in my own life, I find that the more self-work that I do in terms of my own therapy and calling a thing what it is and stepping into 
what I've done and to whom I've done it and acknowledging these things, the better I'm at at failing, the better I'm at noticing um, where I need to learn more, the better citizen I actually become in the world, Um, the better priest I become, the better mom I become, the better partner I become. Um, There's nothing good about resorting to simply that which is comfortable because change is scary. Um, it's sad, but it's part of a narcissistic system. Uh, you need empty people to perpetuate the narrative of superiority, um, of a certain group. You need everyone to fall in line with that. And the sad thing is, is that selves, um, truly, no, I don't want to say truly authentic, but people who are really honestly situated in their own bodies often incur a lot of abuse from the authorities because the authorities are so threatened by actual substantial people. Um, but yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, you know, it's very clear that, you know, that for me, I've my reflection on this and, and from my own story, I've seen how personally, how when I faced up to my grief and my trauma and I did the work and I actually allowed myself to go to rock bottom um, that was the beginning of transformation. That was the beginning of growth. That was the beginning of connecting with myself, connecting with my body, discovering who I was, being free of the of the lie that something can that success or church or religion or anything else or a job or a mortgage or any of those things can actually protect you and save you and and keep you from keep you from your pain and like and as soon as I lost a lot of those things then I started to do the work and I started to have the growth and I started to be in my body and I started to know myself and I started to connect deep more deeply with the divine and have transcendent experiences and um yeah and it's such a and what I learned from that is that when we can if we could do that as a culture right if we could do that in politics uh, as well as individually if this can become a cultural thing that we do, that's just how we are. Because I think this is how we're meant to be human. This is how we're originally meant to be human. Jesus right. actually modeled this. Yes. He felt his pain and grief and trauma. He didn't ignore it. He didn't take the vinegar. He felt it. He didn't, you know, he didn't run away from, from execution. He embraced it. You know, um, that's the example. And I think when we do that, our culture changes. We can, we can actually create a better world, a, we can create, yeah. Um, we can create better. We can have better government. We can have better culture. We can have more justice. We can have more inclusion and equality. We can deal with our problem, the problems of systemic racism and and patriarchy uh, and white supremacy. We can actually deal with these things and eliminate them over time. And if we do this, the opportunity is there right now for us to do this because of mm-hmm. the pandemic and because of. Um, because of what actually Trump kind of brought it to her head and Brexit's kind of brought it to her head, that that we have the opportunity now to, to to do this if we choose to. And that's the question now for us. We're at that point where we can, over the next few years, or we can choose what we do. And I hope that people will choose to name their grief and experience it and do the work. Um, and if we do, then there is hope. 
I really agree with that. Um, I do grieve over the two opportunities that my my country, you know, America has had in terms of the surge of COVID in the first wave back in March and April. And then the race riots were definitely opportunities for the American culture, Americans in general, to stop and say, we've royally fucked up. We need a complete overhaul right now, right now. And I, with, we just don't have the substance to do so. Um, and until we get that substance, uh, we're going to keep causing pain and violence and everyone in that system is just dying. Um, so I hope that we can maybe actually listen to the answer that's being delivered to us and ask the necessary questions rather than sticking our fingers in our ears and skipping along to the rhythm of a narrative that is just absolutely destructive. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I and I'm also I also take solace from the fact that the new president is somebody who has experienced grief and trauma, who was yes. bullied and has actually faced up to it and processed it and done the work. Uh, and seen that in his own life. And that might be the kind of person that the world needs right now. At least help. It'll help to have someone um, in, in, in office that is not quite so much narcissistic <laughs> textbook. <Yes. laughs> yeah, someone who does care about COVID. Yes, thank you. That, that does help. That does help. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. This has been a really great conversation. I'm sure we can do this again and there's loads more to talk about. But um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. I've enjoyed the conversations we've had in the past. I look forward to more. Um, so this has been wonderful. Thank you. And how can people find you online? Um, I'm very private online, so I don't normally do the Twitter handles and stuff. However, I do have a blog and a, and a, and a, and a website, laurenrelarkin.com. That's the best place to kind of find me. Um, and then also my podcast, Sancta Colloquia, has both an Instagram and a um, Twitter account, and that is Sancta Colloquia. I won't spell it because it's really long. <laughs> Um, it's Latin. Um, but if you Google something like that, the Twitter page will come up because that's all public. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Lauren. It's been really great having you on and we will have you on back again. So, um, yeah, thank you. And, uh, and thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>